morning everyone <clears throat> okay today scripture reading is revelation 15 and 16 then i saw another sign in heaven great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues which are the last for with them the wrath of god is finished and i saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. <clears throat> After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls, the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And the harmful and painful source came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you a holy one who is and who was, for you brought this judgment. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them the blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord, go the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three ugly clean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad 
to the kings of the whole world to assemble for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go out naked and be exposed. And they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel put out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. In every island plant away, and now mountains were to be found, and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the black of the hail, because the black was so severe. All right, thank you, Roland. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year, Sunling Philo. It's great to see you in this new year of the tiger. And, you know, normally on the Sunday after Chinese New Year, uh, I try and preach on blessings and what it means to be blessed by God. But this year, Chinese New Year falls right in the middle of our Revelation series. And as you just heard in the scripture reading, today's passage is all about judgment. And so we're going to take what the passage gives us, and we're just going to roll with that. Um, and so we're going to do the exact opposite of what I typically do on Chinese New Year. Instead of talking about blessings, we're going to talk about judgment and wrath today. Although uh, this may be a topic that has a little bit more blessing in it than you might initially expect. And what we're going to see today is that God's judgment is good news for God's people. Uh, and, and as we've been doing the past several weeks, we'll do a Q&A session after the sermon. Um, so if you have questions about anything I say, uh, send Les a private message on Zoom, and he will uh, moderate the Q&A session after the sermon today. And like I said, today what we're going to see is that God's judgment is good news for God's people. And we'll look at confronting cultural myths, a perspective shift, and how to escape wrath. But first, let's pray. Father, we pray for our time together today, looking at your word. God, we pray that you would be speaking to us, that you would be helping us to um, yeah, just be able to hear your word clearly, to understand what it says, and how that connects to us, and you know, I pray that you would be guiding us during this time, that, that the words I say would be honoring to you and would help us love you more and trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, confronting cultural myths. So like I said, we're in the middle of our series on Revelation. So far, we've seen God's plan for the world is unfolding, and up to this point, it's involved a lot of judgment and suffering, and we finally saw last week why that's the case. Why, if God's in control and God's plan is happening, is there so much suffering? And what we saw last week is that it's because there's a cosmic war going on. 
and our world is right at the center of that war. And so we've been looking at these different judgments from the seals and the trumpets, and then this week we're looking at the bulls. One thing we've seen uh, it saying all along is that John sees them one after another, but they don't happen one after another. John sees them in order. He tells about, about them in that order, but they happen simultaneously in the world. And so we can see this really clearly if we compare and contrast the bulls we're looking at this week with the trumpets we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So there's way too much parallel, parallelism between these two judgments for them to be referring to separate events. Uh, instead, they're referring to different perspectives on the same events. So the first trumpet and first bull, both of them strike the earth. The second trumpet and second bull, both of them strike the sea. The third ones both strike the fresh water. The fourth one's the sun. The fifth trumpet and fifth bull, they both involve darkness. The sixth trumpet and sixth bull both involve demonic activity at the Euphrates River. And then the seventh ones both include lightning and rumbling and thunder and earthquakes and big hail. And so these trumpets and bulls are clearly showing different perspectives on this same series of events. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that with the trumpets, their aim is to cause pain for the people of the earth who don't trust in God so that those people will wake up and realize their need for God and trust in him and be saved. But what we see with the bulls is that for the people who stubbornly refuse to repent, for the people who continue in their opposition to God, that God's wrath and judgment ends up having the last word for them. And there's this escalation happening as we go throughout these different series of judgments. The seals harmed a quarter of the earth. The trumpets harmed a third. But now that we've reached the bulls, it's hitting everything. Everyone that's left is impacted. So the bulls show us that God's wrath and judgment is coming for everyone who rejects him, which is why we're talking about judgment today. And I realize the idea of God being a judge and having anger it's not a popular idea in the world today. Like for most people in our culture, if a Christian says God's a God of love, their immediate response goes something along the lines of, oh, really? Your God's a God of love? Why so much wrath and anger if your God is a God of love? And a passage like this seems to contradict the Bible's teaching that God is love. It seems like a contradiction because at some point, this belief became popular in our culture that love and wrath are mutually exclusive. Someone who's truly loving can't have wrath and anger. But this actually couldn't be further from the truth. The reality is love isn't opposed to anger. Love requires anger and wrath. Listen to this quote from Rebecca Pippert. She says, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who's perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others, so what's God's problem? But love detests what de destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and relentlessly hostile to injustice. Love isn't opposed to anger. Love requires anger. 
And we can see this in human love. If someone walked up and punched my son in the face and I just said, I can't get angry, I'm too loving. No one would think I'm a good father who deeply loves my son. No, if, if I said that after my son got punched in the face, I'm, I'm too kind and loving to get angry. You would think that I was indifferent toward my son. You would think that I hated my son. My love for my son requires me to be angry at whatever harms him. And the more I love him, the more angry I will be. Love and anger go hand in hand. So what does that mean when it comes to God? Well, it means that if God were to look at something horrible like the Holocaust that killed and destroyed so many millions of people who he loves, and he looked at that and said, oh, I can't get angry. I'm too loving. No one would think he's a good God for that. A God who could look at that level of evil and suffering and just shrug it off as no big deal would be completely indifferent to humanity. God couldn't respond to the Holocaust by shrugging it off unless at the deepest level, he actually hates humanity. But for God to truly love us, he has to be angry at that evil. He has to judge that evil. And so I think on some level, there's a least common denominator type of atrocity that hopefully all of us can agree God is right to judge. And once we recognize that, the question actually changes. Once we recognize there's a type of evil God has to judge if he's truly loving, the question is no longer, can a good and loving God judge sin and wrongdoing? No, instead the question becomes, where's the line? Where's the point where one person gets judged and another doesn't? What determines whether I get the same fate as Hitler or whether I get something else? And I think probably for the most part, most of us, if not all of us, are probably okay with God judging someone like Hitler. Is that accurate? That we, we'd feel okay if God judges someone like Hitler? But we far, we're far less okay with the idea of God judging our friends, or our coworkers, or our family members, or ourselves. Like, isn't that true? Like, we're like, oh, God can't have wrath toward me. I'm not as bad as Hitler. As if that was like the standard we set for our morality. As long as we're not as bad as Hitler, we're okay. And so what we do is we try and come up with these sliding scales that make it okay and good for God to judge Hitler, but not okay for him to judge us and the people we love. But there are two big problems with doing this. The first is that at the most basic level, you just can't live up to your own standard. Think about it. What's the most common standard people set as their criteria by which God should judge us? It's do more good than bad, right? It's like there's this balancing scale. Every time I do something good, it goes on one side. Every time I do something bad, it's on the other side. And at the end of my life, as long as the good side is heavier than the bad side, I'm good, right? That's what a lot of people think God's standard is or should be. Now, that's not God's standard, but for the sake of argument, just assume that it was. If that was God's standard, how often do you do a good deed that's completely pure, completely free of selfish ulterior motives? Like, sure, I'll help the new guy at the office learn the ropes and learn how to do the job, but I'm doing it so the boss notices what a great employee I am and wants to promote me quicker. I'm doing it so that I can recruit this new guy as an ally in office politics. There's, I'm doing a nice thing, but there's this selfish angle to it. Or maybe I'll help the old grandma across the street, but only because there's this cute girl watching and I want her to know what a great guy I am. 
I once heard this guy speaking and he was sharing about how one day he decided to be really generous. And at the local coffee shop, he was going to leave a huge tip in the tip jar. And he was reaching into his pocket to get the money out for this tip. And right as he put his hand in his pocket, the person at the counter turned around to do something else. And they weren't going to see him put the money in the jar. And he decided, uh, maybe I don't need to leave a tip today. That's horrible, right? But can't you relate to him? Haven't you had moments like that where you wanted to do something good and then you realized if I do this good thing right now, I won't get any credit for it. And so you decided I'm just not going to do it now. The best and kindest and most generous things that we do or aspire to do are almost always tainted by selfishness or a desire for recognition. It's incredibly rare, if not impossible, for us to do a good deed that is holy and completely pure. And so if God does judge us based on this scale of good deeds versus bad deeds, which he doesn't, but again, if he did that, even when we're putting deposits on the good side of the scale, every good deposit comes with something on the bad side too, and that's in our best moments. There's no way any of us passes that test. And you know why we constantly fail? I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it best. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. None of us is wholly good, even on our best day. The line between good and evil runs straight down our own hearts so that even the best things we do are tainted by evil. And that's why, I think that's why the wrath of God is an uncomfortable subject for us. Because in that rare moment where we can be completely honest with ourselves, if we're looking at ourselves clearly, we have to admit that just like Hitler, we deserve to land on the wrong side of this judgment. Like even if we're the ones setting the standard for God to judge by, we fall short of our own standard. And so that's the first problem with us trying to set the standard God should judge by. And the second standard is if God's really God, he has his own standard and he doesn't care what your standard is. Like if there's really a God and he's really all powerful and he really rules over everything that exists, do you really think he's sitting up there in heaven? Like, ah, well, Joey thinks my standard for judgment is no good and I should replace it with his. So maybe I'll do that. No, he's God. He has his own standard. His standard is perfection and us as finite and flawed and imperfect beings coming up with our own ideas about how he should run the universe is not going to change his standard because he's God. And so even if we could set the standard, we wouldn't live up to it, but we can't. And the standard is impossibly high for us to reach. And so God's justice makes us really, really uncomfortable. And yet at the same time, all of us have a deep desire for justice that can never be completely fulfilled apart from God's justice. I mean, think about one of the big social movements that's been happening in the States the past few years that's made international headlines, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. So what's happening in that movement? Well, there's this recognition that the way non-white Americans have been treated throughout the history of America has been wrong which it has been, and this movement has a de desire to correct that. But here's the problem. Even if you get complete equality in the future, you can't undo the past. 
You can't erase hundreds of years of slavery, millions of people who spent their entire lives as property of another person. You can't undo the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of slaveholders throughout US history who prospered financially because they owned slaves and then died in peace. And if God's justice isn't part of the picture, isn't part of the way the universe works, how do you get over your hurt and anger about the past? You can't. There's always going to be someone who on a human level got away with doing wrong. Without God's justice, the only way to even things out is by oppressing those who used to oppress your people. But then you're becoming the very thing you hate. That's not justice. Only in a world where God holds people accountable for what they do in life are we free to look at things that were bad in the past and call them bad to say that was truly wrong and at the same time, let go of our hatred and anger of those things without becoming part of the problem ourselves. God's justice is not bad news for a broken world. It's actually our only hope for the justice that our souls crave. And I realize even knowing that, many of us probably still feel uncomfortable with the idea of God's wrath, but God call, our revelation calls us to have a perspective shift. Now, let me ask you, if I were to have you list out all the things about God that were worthy of praise and celebration, what would you put on that list? Things about God that are worthy of praise, worthy of worship, worthy of celebration. I'm guessing some people would say his love. Would anyone mention love? How about grace, mercy, forgiveness, generosity, and probably a lot more. How many of us would list anger or wrath or judgment? How many of us are offended that I might even suggest that being something that could end up on that list? I mean, as I already mentioned, our culture tends to get offended at the idea of God's wrath and anger. But this passage in Revelation that we just looked at actually challenges our perspective on God's wrath and anger. Because if you look at the responses of angels and Christians to God's wrath in these chapters, it may shock you that it's overwhelmingly positive. There's no queasiness on their part. There's no wishing God didn't have to do this. No, anytime they speak, the, the Christians in heaven and the angels, it's a celebration of what God is doing right here. Like if you look at chapter 15, verses three and four, the Christians in heaven are gathered by this sea of glass in front of God's throne. They're singing the song of Moses. Now, the song of Moses was what the Israelites sang in the Old Testament after God freed them from Egypt and wiped out Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea. It's a song of judgment. And what do these Christians say? Oh, God, we wish you didn't have to be so harsh, but we're okay with it because we know we have to be. No, that's not what they said. God, please tone it down a bit. This is all this judgment's making us really uncomfortable. No, that's not what they say. Look what they say. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. They are celebrating God for his anger and judgment and wrath, which like, I think most of us don't have any capacity for understanding how that's possible, right? But then we see it's not just humans. If you go to chapter 16, verses five and six, this angel who's poured out the th third bowl of God's wrath, he says, just are you, O holy one, 
for you brought these judgments. He's praising God and affirming that God is right to send this judgment on the earth. And then in verse 7, all of the people who have been killed for their faith under the, who are under the altar say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Again, God, yes, you are right to do this. Yes. Wherever God's people comment on God's wrath and judgment in these passages, it's celebrating and affirming what God is doing. Now, how can they be so positive about this? I think there are two big truths we see in Revelation that help us understand this perspective. The first is that according to Revelation, God's wrath brings rescue for God's people. Remember what we've been saying in this series. There is a war happening. Satan and his followers are opposing God and his people. There's no such thing as neutrality. If you think you're neutral, it means you're fighting against God. One of the main tactics Satan and his forces use to recruit us to their side is to simply convince us there is no fight. And once we accept that that's true, they've got us. The consistent picture of Revelation is that the unbelieving world persecutes the church because they see us as their enemies in this fight. You know, I think Christians in the Western world, which includes Hong Kong, often don't experience this persecution too much, which may just be a blessing from God, um, living in a society that's, that's more open to us being able to believe in Jesus, but it also may be a sign that we've potentially accepted the world's ways a little too wholeheartedly, that we don't stand out enough from the world around us. But the expectation of Revelation and the New Testament as a whole is that Christians will suffer for their faith at the hands of the unbelieving world. Like this isn't just something from Revelation. If you look at John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, the world will treat my followers the way that it treats me. Now, what did the world do to Jesus? It killed him. So Christians who are seeking to faithfully follow Jesus will suffer. And the only way for the suffering to end is for God to deal with the ones who cause that suffering. Revelation describes that process as God destroying the destroyers of the earth. So God's just wrath is actually good news for God's people because it means an end to our suffering. When God pours out his wrath on the people who oppress and persecute the church, Christians are free from the suffering that we've endured for Jesus. And actually for God to sit back and do nothing to the people who persecute and, and oppress and kill his people wouldn't be love. Like we've been saying, it would be indifference to the suffering of his people, which is hate. God sends judgment to rescue his people because he loves us, which is why the Christians and the angels in this passage celebrate his wrath. So that's the first thing. The second reason to be positive about God's wrath is that God's wrath is just. I think there's a common myth in our culture that God's wrath is excessive and unjust. Like, have you ever heard someone say, come on, do you, do you really believe if I lived a completely perfect life and all I did wrong in my entire life was tell one little white lie, God would really send me to hell for that? Now, you know the problem with that question. Who in the entire history of humanity, apart from Jesus, has ever come close to doing that? Who's ever been anywhere near that good? Nobody. From the day we're born, we, all of us, try to make the world revolve around ourselves. We lie to make life better for ourselves, not just little white lies. Any lie we think we can get away with that will benefit us, we will tell. 
we use other people to advance our own desires, whether that's in workplaces, whether that's in families, whether that's in romantic relationships, we use others any way we can to advance our own desires. We take things that aren't ours. We cause suffering and harm to people around us because we believe we really are the center of the universe. And it's not just some of us, we all do this. And yeah, all of these things are aimed at making life better for ourselves, but they do it at the expense of other people. All of us bring harm and destruction and loss and poverty to others so we can help ourselves get ahead. And as we've been saying, if God really loves people, he wouldn't be just, he wouldn't be loving to just sit back and see us doing all these things that cause harm to the people he loves and do nothing about it. What we see in these chapters is that although God's justice is severe, yes, it's also perfectly just. I mean, look at the the punishments that he pours out on people in chapter 16. If you go back to chapter 13, we were introduced to the mark of the beast. This mark was used to make life uncomfortable and painful for those who refuse to get it, for the followers of Jesus. And in this first bowl, what happens? God gives people who have the mark of the beast more marks, painful sores, to make life uncomfortable and painful for them, just like they made life uncomfortable and painful for his followers. The punishment fits the crime. Or look at this angel's praise in chapter 16, verse 6. He says, they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. Something we can't see in the English, but that's super clear in the Greek, is that this word shed the blood, actually the exact same Greek word as poured out, as in the angel poured out his bowl. So the picture is that the unbelieving world pours out the blood of God's people, and now in the second and third bowls, God's pouring out blood on their water. The punishment fits the crime. Or in the fifth bowl, Jesus is the light of the world. The beast tries to get people to stop worshiping Jesus and worship the beast instead. And so what happens? The beast's kingdom is plunged into darkness because they've rejected the light of the world. The punishment fits the crime. Or the sixth bowl, Jesus is the prince of peace. In the sixth bowl, the kings of the world who have rejected this prince of peace gather together for a war where they're all going to get wiped out. The punishment fits the crime. Or in the seventh bowl, if you look back to Revelation 14.8, it tells us that Babylon made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then in the seventh bowl, Babylon has to drain the cup of the fury of God's wrath. Just like they made everyone drink the wine from their bowl, God's making them drink from his bowl. Every step of the way, the punishment fits the crime. Yes, God's wrath is severe, but it's also just. And I realize many of us probably still are, don't like how severe God's judgment is on sin. But I think that's because we don't really understand properly what sin is. Sin isn't just a handful of small bad things we do. Sin is like a cancer that eats away at the goodness of God's world. And if you've ever had cancer yourself or known someone who's had cancer, you don't kind of deal with cancer. Like you don't go in after the operation and and have the doctor say like, oh, you know, we got part of it out, but but we left a little bit because we didn't want to be too harsh. No, when you're dealing with cancer, you need to be harsh and aggressive to get rid of all of it. Because if you leave even the tiniest trace of it behind, it grows back. Cancer makes us willing to fill our bodies with radioactive poison that makes our hair fall out 
that makes us just puke and leave us feeling like garbage. And it makes us willing to do all that because the alternative is worse. God's wrath is to sin what chemotherapy and radiation are to cancer. That's why they're so harsh. They, they show no mercy to the thing that needs to be destroyed because if you leave a trace of it, it's going to grow back and it's going to bring death. Now, just to anticipate a couple of questions you may have about God's wrath. Yes, it's good news that God will right all the wrongs in the world, uh, but no, it's probably not a great idea to lead with God's wrath when we're talking with non-Christian friends and family members about Jesus. Like if you're trying to share with your friend about Jesus, probably don't use the starting line like, hey, God has angry wrath. Isn't that awesome? Because again, in society at large and in the church, this is an issue that has a lot of baggage and a lot of misunderstanding. We don't need to hide from it if it comes up. If we're trying to talk to people about Jesus at some point, we will need to bring it up, but probably not the best thing to lead with. The other thing to remember is that while God's wrath is good news for Christians, our first desire for everyone around us should be that they never have to experience this. No matter how badly the people of this world treat us, Jesus' command is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Which means unless you want your neighbor to have to experience, or unless you want yourself to have to experience this wrath, you shouldn't be cheering for your neighbor to experience it either. If you look in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, Paul tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Translation, in this war that's happening, the people around us aren't the true enemy. They may be used by the enemy to do his bidding, but the true enemy is Satan and his forces. And the people around us are actually people God wants to save and rescue from Satan and his forces. Yes, if they insist on remaining allied with Satan and remaining God's enemies, they will experience his wrath someday. But for us, our call is to keep loving them, to keep inviting them to stop being his enemies and to find rescue from that wrath. And if you're here today and, and you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, I don't want you to experience this wrath and judgment. That's why I'm being very clear and honest about it, because I, I want you to know that it's, it's real and it's severe. But God is inviting you today to trust in him so that it doesn't have to be something that you experience in your life. And so if you're curious how we can be free of this wrath, that brings us to our third point, how to escape wrath. See, if you were paying attention so far, you may have noticed there's a problem. I said that God's wrath is just, that God loves humanity, and if he doesn't pour out his wrath on people who bring harm and destruction to the world, he isn't just, he isn't loving. But then I also said that all of us have been people who bring harm and destruction to the world. So what does that mean? It means that if God's really just, we all deserve to experience this destruction. So how do we escape it? And I want to point you to two hints in this passage that show us how to escape God's wrath. The first is that throughout chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation, we see that God's wrath is poured out. Poured out is judgment language. But it's also salvation language. You know, this exact same Greek word for poured out, when the angels pour out their bowls, that exact same Greek word shows up at the Last Supper. When Jesus is having that last meal with his disciples before going to the cross, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what does that mean for us? It means you can't escape some type of pouring out. You can either experience God's wrath by having it poured out on you, or you can be free of God's wrath because the blood of Jesus was poured out for you. By having the blood of Jesus poured out in your place to pay everything you've ever done that merits wrath, taking your place so you can go free. That's the first hint in this passage of how we can escape wrath. The second we see in chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Now, if you know your Bible, does that, does that saying, it is done, remind you of anything else in the Bible? How about in John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished. Quite similar, right? But not actually the same Greek word. However, if you look back at Revelation 16, 17, when it says it's done, it's referring back to something else. It's referring back to Revelation 15, 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And guess what? The finished right there at the end of that verse is the same word Jesus says from the cross. So what does this mean? It means one day the wrath of God will be finished. It'll either be finished because it's poured out on you in its fullness and you personally experience every last drop of it, or it will be finished for you because it was poured out in its fullness on Jesus on the cross so that you can go free. And if you trust in Jesus, if you receive his sacrifice as a gift for you, God's wrath is finished for you. There's nothing left. It's all poured out. The bowl is empty. All the bowls are empty for you because they've been poured out on Jesus. God's justice now means he can't pour out any wrath on you. It would be unjust because he's already poured it out on Jesus. The punishment has already been paid. It is finished. And that's our second hint in this passage. Church, God's wrath is, it is scary, but it doesn't need to be for us. It doesn't need to be scary for us because through Jesus, God has set his followers free from ever having to experience his wrath. God's wrath doesn't need to scare us because in the end, it's actually good news for God's followers in God's world. God following through on his promise to make all things right. God will remove all the things that bring death and destruction in the world so people can experience true blessing of life with him. See, I, I got us back to the blessing just for Chinese New Year. And his wrath isn't opposed to his love. It's actually the result of his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who, even when it makes us uncomfortable, you're a God who has wrath. And your wrath isn't a contradiction to your love. It's actually the result of your love. That your wrath isn't bent on destruction, but actually bent on salvation and restoration and healing. And God, I pray that you would give us your perspective on your wrath, that you would help us to see how it is that we could possibly celebrate this. God, I pray for those here who don't know you yet, that you would free them from the path they're on to experiencing your wrath, God. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for revealing your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
So as I mentioned, we're going to do a Q&A session again today. If you have any questions, uh, send them to Les on Zoom chat. And in just a few seconds, he will start asking them. Hi everyone, I'll just give us all um, another half a minute if you have any questions. I'll start asking them as they come in if that's okay. Sure. Um, okay, so the first question is, is there any significance about the mention of the Euphrates River and the kings from the east? Um, yeah, so as we've been saying uh, throughout this uh, series. There's a lot of symbolism in in the book of Revelation. Um, so I think, I, I personally think that this is um, symbolic rather than literally saying it's going to happen at that one location. But if you look um, throughout the Old Testament, um, there's a couple, a couple of significant things that happen. One is that Israel, according to prophecy, their border on the north would be the Euphrates River. Uh, and so the, the attackers like the Babylonians and the Assyrians, when they came in to bring God's judgment on Israel, um, would have come across the Euphrates to attack Israel. Uh, but then also when, when Babylon is conquered by Persia and Persia is able to set Israel free, I think there was also a crossing of the Euphrates there. Uh, and so what you see is that the Euphrates is this site again and again throughout the Bible where big wars happen, where judgment comes, uh, also a place where rescue comes sometimes. Uh, and so I think it's pointing towards that, that, that it's not necessarily literally coming from this one place, but it's this idea of, of big wars, judgment, but also rescue uh, is happening there. Thank you. Uh, the next question is this. Um, you mentioned that God's wrath is severe and that the punishment fits the crime. In our attempt to embrace this perspective shift, how are we to discern if a punishment fits a crime? Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So, well, I mean, one, I think it's important to remember that as limited human beings, we don't have a full perspective. Um, and we, we may not be able to see everything going on behind the scenes, right? Like there may be something that seems really harsh and we have no idea what, what the background was to it. Um, I, I think the other, the really big thing to remember is that this comes from God. God is the one who pours it out. God's not calling us to go out and be his agents for pouring it out. Um, he actually reminds us in, in Hebrews not to seek vengeance ourselves uh, because he is the one, vengeance is his, he will repay. And so when he repays, it will be just. Uh, and we don't need to worry about discerning whether that's a fact. Uh, and in the meantime, he's not calling us as his people to be the ones going out enforcing his vengeance on the world. He's actually calling us to love the world um, because 
we don't need to be the ones pulling out vengeance because he's going to do it. And so we're free to just keep loving people. Um, and so I think on that level, like we on one level don't need to worry about that question because when God brings judgment, it will be just, it will be fair. And in the meantime, we're not the ones in charge of bringing justice. So it's not like I need to be really harsh and cruel and mean to someone. I haven't been quite mean enough yet. I need to be a little meaner to make it fully just. No, like I, I can just keep loving them and trust that when God's judgment comes, it will be just. And, and hope at the same time, as I said in the sermon, that ultimately this person trusts in Jesus and that judgment falls on him so that they're rescued from it. Um, but yeah, I think that would be my thoughts on that question. Okay. I hope I answered what the person was asking. Um, the next question is, how can we explain to our non-Christian friends about the comparison of sins? For example, comparing ourselves to Hitler. Mm. Yeah. I think the concept of, I think a couple thoughts. One, the concept of relationship. I think, um, so, so at the most fundamental level, sin is not doing bad things, but sin is looking God, our perfect creator and lover and father in the face and saying, I hate you. I want nothing to do with you. Like ultimately everything that we do in life that's, that's wrong and harmful to others is a secondary thing that happens because we first said, God, I make a better God of my life than you do leave me alone and let me live the way I want to. Uh, and I think, um, you know, maybe, maybe one, one way to get that idea across is, you know, if there's, if there's a mother who is a single mom, sacrifices so much for her son to be able to have a great life, and she really teaches him to try and be a good person, and then he grows up, he's super successful, he lives the good moral life that she always wanted him to, and then he never talks to her again. Like, is he a good son? Um, just that idea of that sin is so much deeper as a broken relationship and that broken relationship with God, it's, it's even worse because we're not just cutting ourselves off from a human relationship, but we're cutting ourselves off from God. Um, and so the idea that all of us have broken that relationship, I think is a, a common point that we can connect at. I think also the idea of idolatry is a really powerful one. Um, so biblically, an idol is anything in our hearts that takes God's place. Anything we look to, to get what only God can give us. And it's typically good things like family, money, career, success, comfort. Um, but what happens is, we pursue these things in different ways, but we ultimately end up taking good things and making them ultimate. And when we do that, um, we end up acting in ways that harm others because we're, we're putting an undue weight on this thing. And ultimately at the end of the day, anytime that God's not our top priority, we're gonna have something else in that place, something else driving our hearts um, that that's leading us to act in these harmful ways. And so I think if we can connect on that heart level, like, you know, 
I may express this differently than you do, but actually, and, and both of us hopefully express it differently than Hitler did. Um, but at the heart level, what was Hitler's desire? He wanted power. Oh, I want power in my life, don't you? Hitler wanted control. Oh, I, I hate being out of control. I hate uncertainty. Maybe I don't have the means of going all out and trying to take over the entire world as a way of cementing my control. Maybe I do that in smaller ways in my family by responding in anger to my wife when she doesn't do what I want. Right? It, it seems much more mild, but actually the thing in my heart that's driving me is the same thing that was driving Hitler. Um, and again, that's not to downplay the severity of what Hitler did, but I think it's also to help give us a perspective of, of actually how deep our sin is. Like so many of us, I think we might look at someone like Hitler and think, oh, he was so bad and not realize actually if we had more opportunities to cause harm and chaos in the world, we would. It's actually God's grace that holds us back from, from having that power to be able to inflict harm on others that, that restrains us from being more terrible than we are. Okay, thanks, Eric. Um, got one, one more question here. Sure. Um, you mentioned that God's wrath is finished after Jesus. Does that mean God's judgment will be there or is it not for the follower of Jesus? That God's judgment will, like that the follower of Jesus will experience God's judgment, you mean? Um, does that mean God's judgment will be there or not for the follower? Yeah, that the follower of Jesus would experience that judgment. Yeah, so I think there's, I think there's two levels of suffering and difficulty that we need to distinguish. Um, because obviously, as anyone who's a Christian can tell you, being a Christian doesn't mean that life is easy. Being a Christian doesn't mean that life is always comfortable. Being a Christian often means that we suffer. But there's a distinction between the suffering that's happening in the bowls, where it's God's wrath being poured out on people, and the suffering that Christians experience. Um, the suffering that Christians experience is described in Hebrews as like discipline that a father gives to his son. If you think, if you're a parent and you think about what you're doing when you discipline your child, you're not disciplining your child because you hate your child or want to cause harm to your child. You're actually disciplining your child, causing them discomfort and some small level of suffering now to rescue them in the future, to teach them this is how you live properly. I don't want you to end up in prison as, a, as an adult so I'm going to send you to your room for a few minutes now to learn better behavior and better ways of living in the world. Um, and that for Christians, our suffering is God doing something like that to us. It's, it's not given to us with the goal of, it, it's not his anger towards us. It's not his wrath towards us. It's actually his love towards us, refining us, purifying away the things inside us that will harm and destroy us so that we can actually be free to live this blessed life as his people as well. So there will be suffering, there will be difficulty, but it's not God's wrath, it's actually God's love. 